If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth is an amazing book, a mysterious book. Uh, They don't know exactly when it was written. There are some really interesting theories that if I start talking about them, will derail the entire sermon, and we don't want that to happen. So let's start reading chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was not Oprah. It was Orpah, despite what my autocorrect is always trying to do. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country to Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Then she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. and Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. One of the most challenging, I want to say it's the most challenging, but one of the tricky parts of preparing a sermon is to put a title on the sermon. You know, you think the work is, is in the studying and the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and the historical context, and that is a lot of work. 
But then there comes that point where sometimes the sermon title will jump out at you and you've got it right away. Sometimes you get a title before you get a sermon. Those are all wonderful things. And then you get a text and you know you're supposed to preach out of the text and you're working through the text, but you're struggling to find a title. And as I was reading about this first chapter scene, this is sort of like a play with four acts and each chapter is sort of like an act. I'm reading Act 1, and this, this idea that it says that they set out from the place and they went on their way in verse 7 to return to the land of Judah. So basically, everything we're hearing this morning is taking place on a journey. They're walking back to Judah. And I, I was reading uh, in one of the, the resources that I had and had this phrase, and I saw it, I said, oh, there we go. That's it. Jumped off the page. And as soon as I thought about it, I thought, oh, you know what? That might actually be a little bit corny. And so then you wrestle with it. Is this a stupid title? Is this a corny title? It seems kind of like a ripoff of something. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to stick with it. So I send it to Pastor Paul, who's so supportive, by the way, in immediately making fun of my sermon title. And I'm so secure that I just, it just like water off a duck's back. But I'm also a little bit stubborn. So I'm like, you know what? Forget you, Paul. I'm sticking with the title. That's right. And Paul says, is this, they put it up too early. It's okay. The road back to, he looks at it. This is actually working out great. He looks at it and he's like, is this some really corny pun on the Enneagram book? And I'm like, no, Paul, it's not. <laughs> Here's the thing. I never said it out loud. <laughs> I'm just looking at it in my notes, the road back to Judah. And the Enneagram book is the road back to you. So now ever since then, I can't even think about my sermon. I'm just thinking about the road back to Judah, the road back to Judah. The... <sighs> Thank you, Paul. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful uh, that we have these texts in our own language. This is a tremendous blessing that so many people still around the world today don't have, and so we want to thank you for that. But more than that, we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit, who not only inspired these texts, but also indwells us. And so we ask today that your Holy Spirit would work in such a way that the preaching is effective, the preaching is engaging, but more than anything, that our hearts would be wide open so that you can do the work inside of us that you need to do. And so we uh, ask for your help to that end through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this is a little bit scandalous because we start off with a story of Israelites being in Moab. Now, I don't know how good you are at Bible trivia, but Moab has a very, it's a country it's a group of people, a tribe, if you will, named after a guy. So there's a guy named Moab, and Moab has a really, really nasty story because no, Moab is the son of Lot. You might remember Lot. If you remember Lot, just wave at me a little bit this morning on this rainy fall-behind Sunday morning when you've got an extra hour of sleep, so you're going to be really energetic this morning. This section is very energetic. This section has a lot of kids in it. It should be very energetic. I'm praying for all y'all over here. You should have been distracting me with your screaming and shouting while I... No, I'm just kidding. 
Here's the thing. We all remember the story of Lot and Abraham and Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham goes to the desert and so on and so forth. What a lot of us sort of skim over in the Bible reading plan is the fact that Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Ill. And his son was named Moab. So we have this sort of family relation that shouldn't be a family relation, the worst, court, the worst sort of cousin you could possibly imagine. We have the children, the descendants of Abraham. In this particular case, we have the descendants of Judah. Judah, a very special part of these 12 sons of Jacob, the one who preserves Joseph's lives by talking everybody out of killing Joseph. This Judah, these people are living in Bethlehem. The name of the town means house of bread. So they're living in the land flowing with milk and honey. They come from a town that's basically a bakery, and they're starving because of a famine. So the whole setup for this story, when the original hearers are listening to this story, everything about this is wrong because Bethlehem is supposed to have bread. The promised land is supposed to be where God fulfills all of his covenantal promises to Abraham. This is the place where God has shown himself to be God. He didn't just talk it out. He didn't just give Abraham these fanciful promises. He actually followed through and brought them into Canaan where there's now no food. It's a problem. It's very, very problematic. Moab makes the story even worse because Moab, this sort of perversion of family, has been oppressing the Israelites under the judges. Moab's not a good neighbor, forget a good family member. And... Ruth lives in Moab. The star of our story lives in Moab. The star of our story has the most checkered, awful sort of past reputation. And how about this? She, she was clearly a great person, but a whole nation would have thought she was horrible just because she's from Moab. I wish I knew Oklahoma better because I might be able to pick out a town that's the equivalent to Moab. I don't know. In New York, we would say like Pine Bush or something like that. Just that town where hopefully nobody in the room comes from. And nobody here is from Pine Bush, New York, so I could say that out loud and not have to worry, which is pretty awesome. See, here's the thing. Eli Melech, my God, is king. El, Eli Melech, my God is king. Well, clearly your God isn't all that kind of a king because y'all had to go to Pine Bush to get some bread. You had to go to this awful place just to survive. Sometimes we are willing or have to deal with shame in the name of survival. We have to leave the promised land. We have to leave the sense of what's good in ways that are traumatic because it seems like the promises of God are not enough. I just wanted to enter into the awfulness of this husband, his wife, and his two sons walking away from Judah. How awful this is. Their options are to starve 
or to in some way betray God. I wonder how many of us feel like we can't afford to be spiritual. I wonder how many of us feel like if I do right by God, I'm going to hurt myself or my family beyond repair. If I stay faithful, if I stay plugged in, if I keep doing these things, if I stay in Judah, my family's going to die. If I go to Moab, we'll live, but it's going to be a shameful existence. These are their options. I hope that's coming through clearly. This is not a good situation. Where do things change? It's interesting. In verse 6, Naomi, it says, she had heard in the fields of Moab. Clearly, Moab followed through on the promise of food. Clearly, they have survived on some level. The death wasn't because there wasn't food. Her, Naomi's husband, her two sons, they haven't died because of starvation. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes in our efforts to protect ourselves, we die from something else. In other words, when we try to be so pragmatic, so rational, make the decisions that just make good common sense, you end up dead anyway. How horrible is this? The story goes from bad to worse. She's in the fields of Moab as a widow. Can you imagine when you're picking grain and you're filling your basket with grain thinking, wow, this didn't save my family. I'm, I'm just wanting to invite you, like me, to sort of transpose this into your own situation. Maybe there's been a time where you've made decisions that were very pragmatic and they made the most sense you could have imagined and in the end you ended up in the same trouble you were trying to avoid in the first place. Or not. And here she is in the fields of Moab, and, and here's sort of the line that slips by, I think, a lot of us. It says, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. So I want to ask you three questions. And when I crafted my questions, I crafted them intentionally with the word you. Because I don't want us to hide from the questions. I don't want to presume anything about these questions, but I do want each one of us in the room to sit with the question. And the first question is this. Can you hear in Moab? Can you hear in Moab? That might seem like an odd question to you, so let me unpack it a little bit for you. Has anybody had a hard time hearing the voice of God at one point or another in your life? Wave at me, because I'm waving at you first. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that when you really think you need to hear the voice of God most, it's the lowest volume it could possibly be, like subsonic voice of God? I need you to speak right now. And that still small voice is stiller and smaller than you could ever possibly imagine. Think about it. We know that focus is something hard to come by. We know that it's easy to be distracted, and all of those things make it hard for us to hear the voice of God. But I wonder, when you're living life with a sense that God has abandoned you, how hard it is to hear God's voice. 
If you have a question in your mind, if God is real, if God keeps his promises, if God really cares about you, if God really loves you, is God going to take care of your future? If those questions are rolling around in your mind, can you even hear God? See, I think our interpretation of events can deafen us to the voice of God so that we can find ourselves in Moab, but we would never hear a good report. There are some people, not in this church, let me clarify, in other churches, that no matter what they're told, they will find a way to spin it in a negative way in other churches, not here. Any sort of good report immediately becomes, yeah, well. The New Living Translation, when it gets to the end of verse 13, Naomi is describing the events of her life, and she says this. She said, God's fist was against me. Well, it makes perfect sense for her to think that way. She's lost her husband. She's lost not one but two sons. She's a child of promise. She's a descendant of Abraham. She's living in Moab. Certainly God must be punitive. He must be angry. He must be judgmental. Can I just suggest that our interpretation, our spin on events in our lives can deafen us. If you're not in a good place this morning, and, and if you are in a good place this morning, just file this away for the day when you might, no, scratch it, when you will be in a bad place, file this away. Because when you're in Moab, in the fields of Moab, it can be so hard for us to hear anything because we're always interpreting things like the fist of God is pounding us into the ground. The second question is, will you take the road that would lead you back to Judah? Will you take the road that would lead you back to Judah? This is the day before they have automobiles, before they have trains, and certainly before they have aeroplanes. This is the day of the long, slow walk. One foot in front of another foot. This is the day where you're exhausted by the journey not just worn out because you had to change planes in Atlanta. You're exhausted by the journey. You're calloused. You're blistered. You're sweaty. You are chafed by the journey. And here's what's challenging is you don't just disapparate and show up in Judah. You've got to walk one step at a time all the way back. Imagine this, you have to walk from Moab to Judah. Your mind's going. When I get back to Judah, people are going to recognize me. And they're going to interpret events as well. And here's the most common interpretation. Oh, I see. Now that the bread is back, you're back. Hello? 
I wonder how many of us never get where God wants us because we're anticipating the gossip, the response, the reaction of people when we start going after what God has for us. I wonder how many of us on the road back to Judah get about two steps forward and 17 steps back when you realize that your next door neighbor is still living in that house. And when you get back to Judah, they say, oh, Naomi, look at you. So good to see you. And they're lying through their teeth. It's not good to see you. They're going to turn around and they're going to have a little coffee clutch. They're going to be talking about you. And how clearly God's fist was against you. And the thing is, have you ever noticed that we sort of project our stuff on other people? In other churches, I've been there. People project their stuff on other people. And when you are good at interpreting everything in a negative light, you presume that everybody else is just as good as interpreting things in a negative light. So clearly they're going to have the worst perception of your life. Every step you're thinking to yourself, how is this even going to work out? You have to remember, Judah does not have an, any sort of programs to help widows. They don't have social security. They don't have welfare. They don't have any of these programs that are social helps to people. And women are at the bottom of the rung. She's facing a life of poverty, of loneliness, of vulnerability and danger. That's what she's facing. Every step, and let's put a little sprinkle of gossip and scorn on top of that. This is the happiest sermon I preached all year. The burden of the steps on this road is heavy. And can I tell you that restoration often takes longer than new construction? Has anybody found in your life that this is true? Restoring relationships is a lot harder than starting new ones. That's why a lot of us have a wake of people behind us. Because it's much easier to just find a new friend than to repair the damage done with the old one. The road back to restoration takes time. Do you have the patience, the perseverance, the long-suffering? Third question. Will you choose uncertainty in Judah over stability in Moab? Will you choose uncertainty in Judah over stability in Moab? As I said, there's no future for Naomi. No good future for Naomi. It's worse for Orpah and Ruth because they're not just widows. They're Moabitess widows. They have no children, which means they have no retirement. They have no children, which means they have no stability. They have no income. They have no protection. And notice Ruth actually says this. She gets it. Naomi's trying to convince them. Guys, this is not going to be a smooth sail. This is going to be choppy water. I don't know how this is going to turn out. When Ruth says to Naomi, where you lodge, I will lodge. 
That gets read at weddings. Oh, it's so beautiful. Mm, it's a Hallmark movie out, right out of your Bible. Thank God it's not. Um, the word lodge is a word in the Hebrew that speaks to staying one night at a Motel 6 when you're on a journey that you don't know where it's taking you. This is a sojourning word. This is not a settling word. Ruth's commitment is not a commitment that I'm going to come and move into the house with you and we're just going to get it set up and decorate it just so. She said, no, I realize you're going to be bouncing from place to place and I'm going to bed down next to you in all the different places that you end up going to. I think some of us, when we became Christians, quote unquote, we signed up for something that we thought was going to just sort of keep our life in the regular rhythms it was, just make us more effective and better at that. When really, in fact, becoming a Christian is setting out on a journey that's filled with lodging. It's filled with a sort of unpredictable, could we say adventurous, way of life, where you don't know where God's going to take you. And I think some of us get upset on the other side. Have you ever found out after you become a Christian that there was false advertising on the front end of the deal? Anybody besides me? Like this was supposed to be a lot better than it is, much more stable than it is. I mean, God's a rock, right? Shouldn't this be like no change? Sanctuary loves change. I just want to sit and bask in that for a minute. One of the things we hate about change and instability is it exposes the fact that we don't know much about the future. What's coming next? Well, what place are we going to stay at next week? You mean we're not moving here? Isn't it interesting that birds and flowers, as Jesus points out to us, they don't stress over these sorts of things. Birds are not worried about stability in their life because birds are free from the illusion of control. Brennan Manning says this, often trust begins on the far side of despair. When all human resources are exhausted, when the craving for reassurances are stifled, when we forego control, when we cease trying to manipulate God and demystify mystery, then at our wit's end, trust happens within us. I'm 46 years old. I lived 43 of them in one town. With illusions of control. My dad pastored the church for 37 years. So clearly I know what I was going to do. I was going to pastor it for 38. And then God, like, punted me. Gave me a good kick. And suddenly my life was filled with worry. Suddenly my life was filled with angst. Suddenly I found myself 
not knowing what my future holds. And what it exposed in me was my lack of trust. Oh, I trusted all right, but my trust was in me. My trust was in my church in New York. My trust was in my abilities, my giftings, and all these other things. And suddenly, I find myself in a place where I don't have those things to trust in. And I don't know who's who in the room this morning. I don't know where you are in the room this morning. I don't know where your life is at right now. But there are going to come seasons in your life where you feel like you're slogging it. You feel like it takes all of your energy to put one foot in front of the other to get where you think God has called you to be. And what God is doing is he's wringing out every last illusion and delusion you have to get you to the place where you'll finally admit, I don't know what the heck is going on, and you'll trust. See, when I read this story, I'm Naomi in this story. I'm the person who's made questionable decisions. I'm the person whose life could be interpreted as a collection of some really iffy stuff. And then there's Orpah. And I owe Orpah a public apology because I've preached about her in the past. I've not handled her very well in the past. Maybe you've heard preachers like me who sort of turn her out to be the superficial pseudo-villain in the story who just wasn't nearly committed enough and she just turned her back on Naomi and went back to the good life in Moab and all that stuff. And I'm reading it. I'm thinking, she is a good woman. Because you know what? She sets out on the road back to Judah. She walks with this Israelite mother-in-law back to Judah and the mother-in-law has to stop her and the mother-in-law can't stop her. And they weep. And the mother-in-law has to try again to say, no, don't go with me. Listen, friends, Orpah is the best of who we could be. She's the best of who we could hope to be. Committed beyond any commitment that most of us are capable of showing. In the end, she listened to the Israelite mother-in-law and she chose a very rational road with the greatest chances of human flourishing possible. Ruth, Ruth is so powerful in this story because I think she shows us Jesus. Orpah shows us the best a human can be. I think Ruth shows us an entirely different way of being human. It's not about good versus bad. It's about being an altogether foreign and holy person. When you think about it, her name means friend. Isn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Isn't Jesus the friend who sticks closer than a brother? But more specifically, here's what I want to point out. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us the story of somebody who left their place of stability and comfort to go and be with someone who had made bad decisions and whose life was falling apart. It was you. It was me. 
It was humanity. Jesus left his place to come to our place. And our place is not a good place. He took on our identity, the identity of the failed and the powerless, the identity of the Naomi's. And he comes into community and he walks with us as one of us. Notice what, Na- what Ruth says to Naomi, where you die, I will die. If that's not Jesus, I don't know who Jesus is. If that's not Jesus coming and saying, I'll not only journey with you through your life, I will die your death for you. Think about it. Ruth, we know the story. She ends up going into the fields. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And he walks into the fields just like Ruth. But rather than going to glean, Jesus goes into the field to be the grain of wheat that will go into the ground. And he will die and he will be raised again, bringing much fruit. Think about this. Childbearing in in the biblical sense is a symbol of eternal life. Ruth goes back to Judah with Naomi. She meets and marries Boaz. She has a son named Obed. And in bearing a son, she gives Naomi life beyond her death. If that doesn't sound like Jesus, I don't know what does. Jesus, in bearing the cross, has brought us eternal life that begins now. It begins today. I understand that this is not a sermon for everyone today. This is a sermon for a lot of us today. But this is a sermon for all of us. This is a story for all of us. This is something we need to file away and let it become part of who we are. That there are times in our lives when we find ourselves where we really would rather not be. I have good news for you. Ruth is walking with you. Ruth is walking with you on the road back to Judah. And when you don't have the strength to keep walking, Ruth is relentlessly committed to your success. When you're ready to quit and go back, Ruth has already said, your God will be my God. When you wonder what are people going to say, Ruth is going to be with you when they're saying it. I want you to take courage this morning. I want your heart to be lifted up this morning. Let's pray together. Father, today, I pray for everybody who feels like they're living in the results of some bad decisions. Everybody who's trying to navigate the journey back to what you have for them. I pray strength for the journey. I pray hope for the journey. But more than that, I pray that they'd have a sense that you're with them in this journey. Lord, that your fist has not been raised against them, but God, your feet are placed alongside them. 
that God, you walk with us on this journey, that we are never alone, and that we can face scandal, we can face uh, rejection, we can face all of these things because you never leave us, you never forsake us, you are with us always, not just when we die, but to the end of the age. Bless your people, strengthen them, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen.